Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. Glad that you're here today. I'll give you a little test for you. Jesus is risen. All right. You didn't forget from last week. That's good. You don't have to wait another year to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the way. Uh, if you've got new life in Christ, you're continually, every day you're experiencing that. That Jesus Christ has risen. He's given you new life. He's got power over sin, power over death, and uh, can give you victory to make you even the song that we just sang, more than conquerors in any circumstance in life. And so we rejoice in that. If you're a believer, do you rejoice? All right, that's kind of weak, but we'll get after it here in a little bit. We're going to start a series today in the book of Hosea, and we're actually going to touch back on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you might be going, how does that work? You'll see in a little while when we get into Hosea and we see that God's speaking, his word is living and active and speaking to our lives even this very day. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up Hosea. If you're looking for Hosea in your Bibles right now, it's right after the book of Daniel, right before the book of Joel. If you don't have a Bible, download our app, Southbridge app, and you can just click on the word Hosea, and you'll be right there. It's awesome. And so let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you've uh, communed with us already this morning and having conversations with our hearts. And I pray as we open up your word that you'd speak and you know what you want to speak into each one of our hearts. Some people, words of forgiveness. Some people, words of judgment coming against them. Some people hear that you want to correct and change. And God, for all of us, I pray you'd speak into our lives that we'd understand your love more. That God, will you, you, will you use me to be your mouthpiece. Use me to be your vessel for this moment. Will you speak to different hearts and have conversations of things that are happening, even that are not the words I'm even saying, but into people's lives to make them more like you and to love you. And I pray if anybody doesn't know you, they'd know you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What's the most memorable wedding you've ever been a witness to, been a part of, ever seen in your lifetime? Just think about that for just a moment. Think about what weddings are like and what happens there. And uh, one of the blessings of being a pastor is periodically people invite you into their wedding. I see a couple. I did their, officiated their wedding. They're sitting here in the front row. You don't have to raise your hands, but just give them a little hand. They got married yesterday. So right here, right over there. <clears throat> And uh, not specific just to them, but whenever I officiate a wedding, really what I do is I go over the stuff we talked about in premarital counseling. And so some of you, if you say, you know, I want to meet with you, I want you to do my wedding, I'll say, hey, we got to meet together at least four times. And the first time we meet together, I always ask the same question, why are you getting married? And oftentimes there's some version of, well, she's really cute, don't you see that? And he's really awesome. And so there's some kind of conversation. And then I blast people with information that when I was sitting in their seat, I had no information about either. So I had no idea. So it's not even a fair meeting, but that's what I do every time. And uh, what I end up talking about is here's the reason why there's marriage. And we go to Genesis 2.24 where God instituted marriage. And then we start walking through marriage throughout the Bible. And we come to the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians tells us the reason for marriage is to put God's unfailing love on display. To show the gospel love. And you know the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God came after you. He's pursuing you. God's coming after you if you don't know Jesus. He's on a pursuit of you. And it's not because you're lovely. It's not because you're nice. It's not because you're good looking. You're his enemy. And he's coming for you. And he died for you. So you could be reconciled to the Father. That's the ultimate demonstration of love. Is that Jesus died for you. Some people here might sacrifice their life for somebody you love. You were his enemies. And he died for you. And so that's the gospel. And what marriage is supposed to do is put that on display on a regular basis. And so in my premarital counseling, we'll talk about, you know, conflict. And some couples look like, I'm the exception. We don't have conflict. You don't understand. And I think, just give it time. It'll happen. And, <laughs> and then there's, uh, we talk about intimacy. We talk about finances. All those things, though, really aren't what we're talking about. 
It's always to go back to why. Why are you getting married? It's to put the gospel on display through your finances, through your intimacy, through your conflicts, through all the stuff that happens. That's, that's the whole point of it all. And so this, this couple that I was meeting with, you saw who they were, now everybody pointed them out in the front. Uh, the last meeting, I actually contemplated, I don't remember if I told you this or not, but I contemplated preaching to them. Now think about that, how many people are involved in that situation. There's three people there, <laughs> me, them. And I thought, well, I just want to hammer. Why, 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 why are we getting married? So there might come a point where you look at each other one day and go, what was I doing? As awesome as they look today. And you want to go back to that answer, why? And so yesterday we're doing the ceremony and, and I read this passage of scripture I want to read to you today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It talks about God's love. It's not the kind of love that oftentimes we experience in our culture. But this is biblical love. This is God's kind of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 says this, love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. God's love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Get this, love, God's love, never fails. So after I read that passage of scripture, we, they exchanged some vows. I, was, I, was, I said words, but they, they exchanged vows. And, you know, death to us part and sickness and health, richer, poor, to have and to hold, and big words that are get said. All supposed to put on display God's unfailing love. Now, here's the information I want you to know. Today's message is not about marriage. Surprise! It's not about how to have a good marriage. We're not talking about marriage. But marriage is the backdrop of talking about God's unfailing love. And so I want to ask you this question today. Have you ever experienced God's unfailing love in his pursuit of you? Has it ever caught you? And more pointed question, more relevant for today is this. What role does God's unfailing love play in your life today? What role does it play in this very moment, right now, in your life? God's not one time, a long time ago when you walked an aisle, raised a hand, felt convicted. What role does God's unfailing love play in your life today? If you have your Bibles, we're going to talk about that from the book of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet. He's oftentimes referred to as one of the minor prophets. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, just so you know, the last 12 books of our Old Testament are all one book. And Hosea is where it starts. Hosea is the first book in the minor prophets. comes right after the book of Daniel, which is one of the, like, the major prophets. Now, some people hear that and they think, oh, like Daniel's like the big brother. And Hosea's like, that's a cute, he's like a minor prophet. You're, like, okay, you're a real prophet, but you're just like a minor prophet over there. And here's the reason why they're called minor prophets. It's not because they were less important. It's not because they were younger. The books are just shorter. That's all it is. And so you've got Ezekiel. You've got Isaiah. You've got Jeremiah. You've got these Daniel, these big prophet books that are long books. And then you've got these 12 at the end that are these shorter books, and Hosea is the first one. And Hosea uh, is written during a time. We're going to read verse 1, and it's going to talk about the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. God's kingdom was split in two. From an earthly perspective, people thought that was because of political reasons. From God's perspective, the reason why we see that it was happening is because they had forsaken the Lord. Their times, the problem that was going on is that many of the people were trusting in politics to solve their problems. Sound familiar? And then they thought that the problems they were experiencing were because of politics. Bad alliances, bad deals, need to renegotiate, all that kind of stuff. No. We get God's perspective, and he shows, yeah, all that stuff was happening, but the real issue was a spiritual issue, and they had forsaken the Lord. And so what had happened was all kinds of corruption. Sound familiar? Do you watch the news? Uh, there was all kinds of debauchery that was taking place on a regular basis, scandals that were taking place. It wasn't uncommon for a man in that time to go to the temple, and they actually had temple prostitutes to find a temple prostitute and to meet his own daughter. And so let me tell you this. There's nothing new under the sun. We've got different technology. They have the same sin problems that we have. 
And so look at, what, look at what's being said here in the book of Hosea. Like I told you, verse one just gives us the historical context. And then verses two and three, we'll see kind of set the tone for the whole book. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, verse one. The son of Barry, that sounds a lot easier to pronounce than maybe how you might pronounce that, Barry. Barry, like, probably somebody here named Barry. Barry, son of Barry. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, those are the kings of Judah, that's the southern tribe. In the days of Jeroboam and the son of Joash, the kings of Israel, that's the northern part of the kingdom. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, so the first words that he says to Hosea, you're going to be a prophet, I'm going to speak to you directly, and here's the first words he says. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. That's one verse, says whoredom. So don't email me and say, you said whoredom too many times this week. It's right here, it's coming from the Bible. By forsaking the Lord, that's what the whoredom was, forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. We'll end up going through the whole chapter today. We'll stop right there for right now and see what happens here. But if you go through the prophets, what you see is that God oftentimes tells them to basically put their sermons in action, to live a life object lesson, and so you get Isaiah. Isaiah's got a tough assignment. If you read the book of Isaiah, Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. He says that they're going to be ever seeing people that he preaches to, but never perceiving. So they see what's going on, but they don't get what's happening. It's like they get caught up in thinking it's just politics. They're going to be ever hearing. They'll hear the words that are said. They'll never really understand what you're saying. So imagine that if you're Isaiah. I'm going to go out. I'm going to preach. That's my whole life is preaching, and they're never going to get it. And I'm going to show them object lessons. They're not going to, they'll see it, but they're not going to perceive what's happening. One of the object lessons that Isaiah was told to do, Isaiah chapter 20, was to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. That's not a fun assignment, just FYI. Do you know why? It was to show people they're going to be exiled, walking around barefoot, in shame in his nakedness. They didn't get it. Read Ezekiel. Ezekiel one time is told he's got to lay on a, he has to lay on one side of his body for 390 days to represent the 390 years that Israel is going to be punished. And then on the other, he flips over to the other side for 40 days for Judah's punishment. So th- there's no sleep number on this situation, by the way. So try and imagine, 390 days, can't roll over. Some of you, let, you know, you're just like all over the place. And up. He's just 390 days on one side, 40 days on the other side. Not a fun assignment. Jo- even Jonah, the running prophet, he's disobeying God, and God still uses him as an object lesson. Jesus talks about in the New Testament that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus is going to be in the tomb for three days. But he's risen. You still got it. I like that. He woke up now. That's good. You, hear, you see all these prophets. All these prophets have these different assignments. I would argue that none of them are harder than Hosea. Hosea, go marry, and then scholars debate, was she already a prostitute? Was she a temple prostitute? Was she just a loose woman? Was she chaste when they got married, but he knew that she'd become unfaithful throughout the marriage? And here's what I say, who cares? It's all painful. Does it really matter which version it is? I think it's probably the last one that she was faithful at the beginning and things deteriorated and changed, but we don't know. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say. There's hints, but it doesn't say. But why? Why would God tell Hosea to do that? There's two reasons. The first reason is this. You're going to go preach this to my people, Hosea. I want you to feel how I feel. I want you to feel my pain of being connected with these people. And he's got a covenant with these people. He's got multiple covenants throughout the Bible. Some of them are unconditional, Abrahamic covenant. Some of them are conditional, Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is you can keep my commandments. If you don't keep the commandments, you, don't, you forsake the Lord, then there's going to be curses on you. If you keep the commandments, there's going to be blessings on you. We don't live underneath that, by the way. 
live underneath the new covenant, which is all based on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. But what we see by looking at a passage of scripture like this is the, we're seeing the character of God. That doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just talking to people that are under a different covenant. And they've been unfaithful in the covenant. I want you to see, I want you to feel what it feels like, Hosea. But then also to show us, to show us what it looks like for Israel to prostitute themselves and for us as unfaithful people to be unfaithful. And so what God does is he puts his unfailing love on display by connecting himself, by uniting himself with unfaithful people. And that's our first point today that we see from these first three verses is this, that God demonstrates his unfailing love by uniting himself with unfaithful people. And just FYI, in case you're self-righteous and you don't pick this piece up, you're the unfaithful people. He connects himself with us. We're the prostitute in this story. Let's try and imagine this situation. Imagine that you, you get married. And so I don't know, some of you are married, some of you have been married, some of you are not married yet, or whatever's your story. Imagine you get married, and then you go on your honeymoon right away. And you go on a cruise, and it's, it's not snowing at all. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, they got all the food you want at the buffet, and you've just had this day where it was like she was a princess, and you were the prince, and everybody said these big words, and all this amazing stuff happened. And now you're on this boat, and you go away to the buffet because it's so amazing. And when you come back to the room... She's got somebody else in the room with her right away. It's exactly what the, experience, what the experience that God had with the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. Here's the, one of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before you. <laughs> Twelve short chapters later, if you go to Exodus chapter 32, what you'll end up seeing is it'll, it'll be a subtitle there if you've got a newer Bible, and it says the golden calf. What's the golden calf story? Well, the golden calf story is that Moses is up on the mountain with God receiving the covenant, the Ten Commandments, in stone while he's up there. They go, where'd that Moses guy go? Let's create a new God and say that that's the God that led us through the Red Sea. And so they make this golden calf, and God's anger burns against them. And what he's showing us is this. It's just like they're committing adultery on me. He made this covenant. They broke the covenant. It's spiritual adultery. They're unfaithful people. But God uses their unfaithfulness to put his unfailing love on display. And so we see it here. When he tells Hosea, he says, when the Lord first spoke, first words to Hosea, he said, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. Have children of whoredom. Because that's what her prostitution will produce. The land, here's why, here's because of the unfaithfulness of the people, not the, not the earth itself. He's talking about his people. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And then it just says, so he went and took. And I think to myself, so Hosea was just like, okay, sounds like a good plan, God. I mean, Hosea's a real guy. He's got real feelings. He had real dreams. I'm sure that that wasn't his plan for marriage when he thought about what might be someday. And so try and imagine being Hosea. And you marry this woman. And I imagine it was, especially when you see the way that the wording is for the first child versus the second and the third. When you get to the second and third child, it's debatable whether that those are even his biological children. But they get married, and they, maybe they were one of those couples that were like, we're never going to fight. Like, this is awesome. They can't stop touching each other. It's like disgusting, right, for everybody else. It's like, what, what are you doing? And that honeymoon phase, you're still there. That's awesome. Keep doing it. <laughs> and everything's great. And they get along and they grocery shop, and they work jobs, and they live their lives, but then something changes. And maybe it was when they had kids. Because kids change things, don't they? Not everybody who has kids. Amen. <laughs> I remember looking at my wife one time going, when are we going back to normal? And she looked at me like, I'm going to throw something at you. You are going to die. <laughs> kids change things. And so maybe that's when it started to change for Hosea and Gomer. 
Maybe that's when she started. Maybe she was more subtle at the beginning and sneaking off just at different times to be with different men. And, but when you get to the, the next child, it doesn't even mention Hosea. It says that she conceived and brought home a daughter. And you see the names of the children. The names will be significant. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But maybe at that point, it started to become more known. I just, I just wonder, even though Hosea knew it was coming, I wonder what it was like the first time he went to confront her in her adultery. How did that conversation go? Did she deny it? No, not that, no, that's ridiculous. Or she go, yeah, and I'm not stopping. I don't know. But I imagine it was great pain. But here's what you need to know about this passage. You're not Hosea. You're Gomer. You're the prostitute in this story. Hosea is to be a picture of God's love for his unfaithful people, and that's us. We're the unfaithful people. And so the question becomes, why would anyone ever become a prostitute? And here's what you need to know. No little girl dreams of being a prostitute. Some people choose it. Some people are forced into it. No one, no one starts their life off thinking, you know, one day I want to sell my body and be broken, be beaten by a pimp, and get on drugs. Like, nobody's going for that. It happens for some people. So how, how does it happen? Why does that happen? And you go through the Bible and you start to see there's this, these images of prostitutes all throughout the Bible. And you see, you get different names, Rahab, Tamar, Delilah. You get to the New Testament. You see this woman in Luke chapter 7 and washes Jesus' feet. And you got these different people that represent prostitution. But then the most oftentimes the prostitution is talked about is talked about in light of our idolatry. And idol worship, don't let yourself think to yourself for a minute that idol worship is having a little statue in your living room and you pray to some old dead saint. Idolatry is anytime you put something in the place of God. Anytime you've got something that, that's the ultimate thing in your life, that dictates your decisions, it's controlling why you do what you do, that is your idol. And that means you've got the heart of a prostitute. As I was researching this book, I remembered I had seen a story one time. I don't know if you've ever been to the website, I am second, but I am second.com. You can just jot it down in your notes and you go there. And there's all kinds of stories there of people being redeemed and transformed and life change stories. I remember being on that website one time and seeing a lady who had been in prostitution, got redeemed her out of that, and I couldn't remember exactly why it was she said she got into it. And so I wanted to hear the story again. Her name's Annie Lobert. If you want to look it up, it's on YouTube as well. But Annie Lobert's story, she starts sharing, and she talks at the beginning of the, it's a longer video. I wouldn't recommend it for kids. Um, it's a pretty rough uh, story, and even though some of the language that's used, but in her video, she talks about at the beginning her relationship with her dad. She talks about boys and some of those things. But then she talks about when she was 18, she moved away from home, said, when I left that day, I knew I was never coming back. And then she moved to another town, and she started working three jobs to pay for college and to pay her bills. And she said, when I bought nice clothes and stuff, I felt empowered. And when guys paid attention to me, there, were, there was something about that. They were giving me what my dad never gave me. There was something that happened with that. And she said, one night I was at the club with my friend, and we met these guys, and they had money. And this guy had a Rolex on and tailored suits and all this kind of stuff. And she started talking about it, and she was telling her friend, she said, we've got to get these guys money. And she said, her friend ended up falling for one of the guys and ended up a few days later going to Hawaii with him and then calling her from Hawaii on the beach at Waikiki, said, I'm dropping out of college, and I'm staying here, and you should come out here. And she said, I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't even want to ask. And let me tell you what her words were. I want to read it to you so you know I'm just, not just saying these words. This is an exact quote from her video. So I just kind of went with it. It was like an automatic walking into a dark doorway. By the way, she's talking about her prostitution, but these are the exact words for all sin, just so you know. Listen. That I knew. Something wasn't right, but the lure of the possibility of having nice things, finally having money I never had growing up, finally being someone important, overrode all those feelings of any caution. 
and she threw caution to the wind. So when you go through the Bible and you start reading what's the heart of a prostitute, the heart of a prostitute is greed, just so you know. Prostitutes are graspers. They're going after stuff. They're trying to grab a hold of stuff that isn't theirs. You ever grasp for things? Recognition, money, love. You're going after stuff that you want to get, that you don't feel like it's being given to you, that you deserve, that you should have, and so you're going at That's the heart of a prostitute. That's the heart of a prostitute, just so you know, if that's your heart. It says in Proverbs that the, the prostitute reduces her transaction, because it's not a relationship, her transaction, the person that she's with, to a loaf of bread. You ever objectify people in business deals, in helping you advance whatever for your own pleasure? That's the heart of a prostitute. And so if those things are true, you've got the heart of a prostitute. You are the prostitute in the story. Don't be mad at me. It's in the Bible. It's the unfaithful people. They whore themselves by forsaking the Lord. Forget that. Throw caution to the wind. I'm going after it. It's the, the heart of sin. And it's not just the Old Testament, just so you know. It isn't just Israel. I'm going to read you a passage from the New Testament. It's in James chapter 4. In James 4 verse 4, it says this. You adulterous people. What makes you adulterous people? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Okay, so then what's friendship with the world? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So that's what spiritual adultery is. Whatever it is to be a friend of the world, God equates to spiritual adultery in the New Testament. So what is it to be a friend of the world? It must be pretty heinous sin. The way that you answer that question is you've got to read the whole book of James. We don't have time to do that today, so let me just highlight some, some of the things that are, that are in James that will illustrate to you what spiritual adultery is to God in the New Testament. Things like, and then you might not consider these really heinous sins. Showing favoritism to people because they have more money than other people. That's spiritual adultery. Did you ever do that? Speaking, using the same tongue that you praised Jesus with 15 minutes ago to speak evil against your brother or sister in Christ. That's spiritual adultery. Do you know what that means? That means you have the heart of a prostitute. To show favoritism, to have jealousy, uh, to ignore the poverty of another believer and to live your life, just bury your head in the sand and ignore their needs, that's the heart of a prostitute, what James calls you adulterous people. It's bad news. And some of you might feel the weight of this already and think, all right, I hope it gets better when you start reading the next verses. Let me tell you something, it gets worse. It's about to get heavier, just so you know. First point, God demonstrates his unfailing love by uniting with unfaithful people, but he doesn't like our unfaithfulness. It's not like he's just okay, it's cool, it highlights my unfailing love. We're good. No. Second point is this, God's unfailing love burns with white, hot, passionate anger against our spiritual adultery. Look at verses 4 and 5. In verse 3, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then what you need to know, verse, chapter 1 is not really about Gomer. Chapter 1 is about what Gomer produces, about what spiritual adultery results in. And we see it through the names of the children. So if you're taking notes, you want to write down the names of these kids. In verse 4 it says this, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here we see God's white hat, white hot, passionate anger, and he says, the name of this kid, your first son, name him Jezreel. Here, unlike the second name and the third names, you're going to see those, and some of your Bibles, they already translate them, the English uh, standard version that I'm reading from does. Some of them have the Hebrew names in there. They mean no mercy and not my people. It's the meaning of the name that's significant there. 
Here it's not the meaning of the name, Jezreel, it's a location. We'll talk about the meaning of the name Jezreel next week or in chapter 2. But here, it's this place. What happened in this place? Well, you can see here, if you read the passage, go back and read verse 4 again on your own. It's a place of bloodshed. It's a famous place of battle in the Bible. In fact, it's where Gideon, if you're familiar with Gideon from the book of Judges, it's where Gideon beats the Midianites. And what Gideon did, though, is he trusted in the Lord. Jehu must have done something wrong. But what's interesting, if you read the book of Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you see Jehu, what he's actually doing is what God commanded him to do. He's supposed to go and shed blood in Jezreel and kill these idol-worshiping kings and annihilate the idol worship and the forsaking of the Lord from this place. But what happens is that Jehu, don't miss this, in his pursuit of doing what God called him to do, started to forsake the commandments of the Lord and trust in his own strength. He became proud and started to do his own thing. And so what Jezreel is here is not so much the meaning of the name, which means God sows or God scatters, just if you want the meaning of the name, but it's this place. It's a place where Jehu began to forsake the Lord and trust in himself. And so I'll ask you this question today. We sang earlier the song, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. All of our hearts were wandering hearts. We drift from the Lord. What's your Jezreel? What's well, that place where you started to depart from God's, you started to forsake us. Maybe there was a time in your life where sharing your faith and God commands us to share the gospel. Maybe there's a time when sharing your faith was something you were more active in doing. But now it's like, oh yeah, but I've already told a couple people, I'm good. Maybe there's a time when, when being in his word regularly was, was more important to you. There's a time where being in community with other believers was a more significant thing. You, started, you, were, you were more attuned to his commandments in your life, and that you kind of prone to wander, prone to leave. Where was that place? Where did that start? Where was your Jezreel? I was thinking about that this week. I, I thought of David, King David in the Old Testament. And David is a great man of God, slayed the giant, you know, trust the Lord. He's the second king in Israel, but the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. But when you think of David, many of you are already thinking about what's his moment, the blot on his record, Bathsheba. But before there was a Bathsheba, there was a Jezreel, just so you know. And it wasn't because of the bloodshed. Now, David was a warrior. Saul killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. But something happened with him before the Bathsheba moment ever took place. And you read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And just kind of, you read it and it almost sounds like it's just setting the story up. But what it does is it alludes to something went wrong in his life before Bathsheba ever happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, it says this, In the spring of the year, okay, it was nice outside. Maybe it was snowing in North Carolina, but it was nice there. And this is the time when kings go out to do battle. So that's what the spring meant then. Kings go out to do battle. And then it says this, David, David's a king by the way, sent Joab. And his servants. So David was supposed to go. Why isn't David going? With him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites. And so it still went well. They besieged Rabbah. But, that's a contrast, but David remained at Jerusalem. He's never supposed to be on the rooftop of his palace. He's supposed to be out at battle. What happened? When did he get to the place where he was above doing what he had done his whole life? When he was above Obeying the commandments of the Lord. When did he start to trust in his own strength? What was, let me tell you something. Before there was ever a Bathsheba moment, Bathsheba was inevitable in his life. There were a bunch of small steps that led him to that rooftop. There were a bunch of small decisions that got him to the place where that was appealing his friend's wife. 
whom he has murdered, if you know the story. As you read the next verse, I'll just ask you, when did you start prone to wander, prone to leave? We sang the words, are they true? What, where's the Jezreel? And I don't say that because I want to condemn you. We're going to come back to that, but identify, where's your Jezreel? Listen to what happened to David. The next verse, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He's just sitting around while his guys are out fighting, huh? He was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. When did he start to forsake the Lord's commandments? Do you know Jehu, Jehu who's mentioned here in, in Hosea? He said, this Jehu guy, do you know what his legacy is? So he goes and he, he does what God told him to do, and more. And so some people might look at and be like, wow, this guy, he's an achiever. Yeah, the, and more is the problem. Because he wasn't following the Lord. Here's his legacy, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 31. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. God held him accountable for the corporate sin of these unfaithful people. So he says, name your, name your first son, Jezreel. Because I want people to know. I want people to know that I burned white hot against that. And so remember what verse 5 said? And on that day I will break the bow of Israel. You know what the bow of Israel is? The bow in that time. They didn't have RPGs and cannons. All the, the bow was the, the most wide-ranging, accurate weapon that they had in Israel at that time. And it's symbolic in this passage that Israel is trusting in their military might. I was looking at that. I was thinking this week about at our office sometimes what we do to relieve some stress. You know, things are going crazy or whatever. We'll just start shooting each other with Nerf guns. So everybody on our staff is required. You have a Nerf gun. And it's fun to do, but it got me thinking. I was like, I would, I, there's stress at my house too. I'd love to blast those little kids sometimes. <laughs> and so what we need to do is we need to have Nerf wars at our house. But here's the reality. We've got six people in our family. Nerf guns aren't cheap. And so I start looking online. I go to Craigslist. I'm like, all right, Craigslist. People get a bunch of junk at their house, and they finally go, get this out of my house, and they sell it cheap. And so I started looking on there, and I found this lady that was selling 11 Nerf guns for $30. <laughs> it's an awesome deal. But you never know what's going to happen with Craigslist, just so you know. And so I write this lady, and I, I tried to negotiate, even though then it's just kind of my personality. She wouldn't do it, but I still said, all right, I'll buy the, I'll buy the guns. She won that negotiation. She said, but you got to come meet me out in Garner at the parking lot at this store. And I'm like, am I going to die? Like, what's going on? And so I go out, and I pull up, and I'm just like, well, she's in a minivan. Can't be that dangerous, right? And so I park my car. Kids weren't there. I didn't park right next to her. Go up to her. She hands me this huge bag, like this sheet full of stuff, and I hand her $30 cash. Who knows what we'll, There could have been anything in that bag. I was just putting it in my car, like contraband, throw it in the car, drive it, get out of here. I get back home, and I lay these guns out on the living room floor, and I call the kids in. I'm like, kids, come down here. Select your weapon. We're going to have a battle. And I'll tell you the game after you pick your weapon. So I was in control of that situation. And my oldest daughter, I brought the weapon that she chose. It's called the Thunderbow. And she picked it because it's big. And so here's the Thunderbow that came through here. And so let's see. I, I made the back wall on the first service. See so you can get it through the tech team window there. Oh, sound guy. But I love you. You're doing a great job, Mark. You're doing awesome. People holding their hand up and getting the back corner there. And all the lawyers and insurance people are like, you're crazy. Cut that out. <laughs> They're just nerf. That's not that bad. So my daughter picks this weapon, and uh, she's on my team. I, I made the teams <laughs> after that. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you what happened. She got pasted by her little sister. Her little sister, we just played like a capture the flag type game. Her little sister picked a little gun, but it had like 30 little darts in it. And so then, she, her, you know, Ella would shoot, and it's like, dodge that one. 
and I was just like it. And, and so it didn't, let me tell you, it wasn't like her lack of tactical skills, bad strategy. It all came back to the selection of the weapon because her battle depended upon what she was trusting in, the weapon that she'd trust in. The problem here for Israel is they're trusting in politics. They're trusting in money. They're trusting in military might. Do you see what the pastor said? You don't think that God's angry about this? You think, it's, oh, it's just, a, I understand from your perspective. <laughs> no. He says, and I will break the bow from your hand. Let me tell you something about these. I'd break it, but my daughter would be very un- not happy with me. She still likes this, even though she loses every time. She still picks it. That it's a lot less painful for you to release the bow than it is for God to break it from your hands. And so in this passage, what God's saying is, you want, you're going to trust in these other things? Oh, I'll break those other things from you. That'll be a blessing. You call it Jezreel, because Jezreel's where you departed. Jezreel's that moment. And you're trusting in your own strength. But it gets worse. It keeps getting worse, by the way. See the next child. Look at the next child. And she conceived again. But notice Hosea's not mentioned here, and that's why many scholars believe this isn't really his biological child. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, told Hosea, this wasn't Hosea's emotions, but he said, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Mercy, they have mercy, it's done. Now, who names their kid No Mercy? You think about that. I mean, if I've met kids before named Mercy. I've never met kids named No Mercy. It's a tough name. Naming kids, if you ever have had a child named, named a child, you know, that's a big deal. They're, people make a lot of money selling books on baby names and what the baby names mean and what you project you want the kid to be thought of. And if you Google, you'll find all kinds of stories about baby names. I saw one story as I was thinking about that this week about a judge in France. In France, when you name a child, you have to submit it through the courts, which is probably a really good idea. And if they think it's detrimental to the child, they'll change the kid's name. And there was one couple, the judge just changed the kid's name because the parents named the child, little girl, Nutella. (laughs) I thought, I like Nutella. That's good. I like my kids. I like Nutella. I can see why you would do such a thing. Bad idea for the kid. You know, there there are 328 people in the United States that have this name, A, B, C, D, E. That name. That's, that would not lack creativity. Like, what happened in that? But most parents... When they, they name their kid, they put, maybe it's a family name. Maybe it's a strong name. Maybe it's something you want to be. But who names their kid No Mercy? And, and you think about, these are real people. Hosea was a real man. Gomer was a real woman. And you think about their story. And so at this point, it says that she conceived. Remember up in verse 3, it said that she's going to bear you. A, she's going to bear Hosea a son. It doesn't say that here. She conceived a child. The community, they probably... I mean, he's a man of God, and he's preaching God's word, and, and she's probably got a reputation at this point. At least people are whispering. And, and then he names his daughter No Mercy? What do you think people are saying about that? Now, let's pause there for a second, and let's go back to David. Go back to David and David's story, so he sins with Bathsheba. And then he covers it up, and he has a guy killed, Uriah killed, a noble man killed Uriah. And he kept, sin always has ripple effects, just so you know. And you always end up bringing more people into it than you even realize you're doing, even if it's just with your lies. And so he keeps covering it up, and he does it for months, maybe even a year. And then this prophet comes to him named Nathan. Nathan tells him a story. For the sake of time, I won't tell you the whole story, but at the end of the story, David's ticked. He's burning with white-hot anger. And do you know what Nathan says? You're the man. You're the man in the story, David. 
And so back to Hosea. Come back to Hosea here. And so he's got this real wife, and they have a real, real child that gets named No Mercy, and then people in the community are going, you know why he named her No Mercy, right? That's probably not even his kid. He's talking, talking about the, God told Hosea to name the daughter that, and it, it's condemnation on the people that are talking about this. They're going, no, you're the man. It's not the daughter who has no mercy. It's the people, the unfaithful people. You're the man. You're the woman. You're the ones with the adulterous hearts. So God's mercy for you, done. It's everybody who rejects the gospel in this day. There's no mercy for you. God's wrath will come upon you because you've rejected the mercy. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Look at the next name. So these names get progressively worse. Your je- when did you depart? So did trust in your own strength? When did you start rejecting God's mercy? And then look at the next verse, verse 8, or verse 7. He does have some mercy on Judah. Judah's not quite as bad as Israel. They're bad, but not as bad as Israel. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them, but not by the bow. Look what he says. By the Lord their God. Some trust in chariots. Not us. We're supposed to God's people. We're supposed to trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's no other name by which people can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? By the Lord their God, I will, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned, no mercy. And so this is probably in this time, that's probably a couple years. When she had weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This goes back through the whole Old Testament, calling Israel going to be my people and I will be your God. You go back to the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he's at that burning bush and he says, who, who am I going to tell these people? Who sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. And so God referred to himself as I am. The Hebrew in this passage, the end of that verse I just read to you, it could be translated this. I am no longer I am to you. I am not your God. You are not my people. Some people say that in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 9, God's divorcing Israel. But I, I'm hesitant as your pastor to use the word divorce for that because most people, when they hear the word divorce, what they mean is that, that what, what you're going to do, I'm going to get a divorce. Why? Why are you going to divorce? So I can move on. So I can find somebody else. So I can be happy. So I can marry somebody else. That's not a picture of God's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on failing love. It's not what God does here. Probably a better language for us would be separation. I'm going to separate. I'm not going to pretend like we have a relationship we don't have. You've broken the covenant. We don't have a covenant relationship. When you're ready, God says, "You are not. I am not. I am to you. I am not your God. You have another God. What is it? Food, money. Usually, those are just presenting things. By the way, most people even take bash materialism. That's easy to do, like from the pulpit. Most people, it's like insecurity that they're dealing with, trying to have control, trying to be significant, trying to be heard, trying to have a voice. Same as like with food eating disorders. It's not usually food that's the problem." And so you could sometimes it's easy to identify these outward idols: power, sex, money, titles, whatever it is. But what's the issue? What is really on the throne of your life? It's not God. Then he's saying, then let's not pretend. I am not your God. You've rejected my mercy. There was a, your heart wandered. This is where we're at. And it's bad. It's this white, hot, passionate anger against our spiritual adultery. And so if you read the book of Hosea and you think to yourself, like God's just like this puppy that just keeps coming. And if he's just going to keep coming, if we just throw him a treat every once in a while, we'd be good. You, you do not understand God's unfailing love. But his unfailing love is powerful enough to transform a rebellious heart. 
That's our third point. God's unfailing love can reverse the rebellion of a sinful heart. Look at verse 10. Verse 9, he just said, you're not my people. And in verse 10, he says this. I didn't skip anything. You can look at your own Bible. There's nothing in between here that changed things. He says, yet the number of children of Israel. And he's, he's referring to another covenant, an unconditional covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He's saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise. You're still going to be, my, maybe not all the people in this generation. His wrath, may, their hearts are hardened, and they all be separated from him for eternity. But, but he's going to keep his promise. You got Ahaz. You got him. You got him right there. That's awesome. The sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. So in the same place where it was said, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children. You want to know the resurrection's at in this passage? Right here. Of the living God. The same God who can take the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37 and make those bones live. The same God that can take a tomb where the Savior of the world's been buried for three days is the same God that can transform your life and reverse your heart. So the children of the living God the children of Judah and the children of Israel, so it's not elect one more than the other, shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. That's an allusion in the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, by the way. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Then chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and your sisters, you have received mercy. So the name, all the names are reversed. Jezreel is where I'm going to transform you, and you were once not my people, now you are my people. You had once not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Do you know why? Because God is a God of second chances. And you go through, the look at all the people he made covenants with. Look at Abraham. He was an idol worshiper, and God used him to be the father of our faith. Look at Moses. Moses was a murderer. You're going to lead my people, but I've got to teach you some tough lessons. And you take Noah, like just start taking these people through the Bible. You don't even have to take, you don't even have to pick the prostitutes. But Rahab in the line of Jesus. God is a God of second chances. That video that I was telling you about on I Am Second of Annie, the, the prostitute earlier, it's about, like I said, about 13 minutes. And so it's a little bit longer than some other videos. It's worth it to watch it. But what she talks about, she talks about the highs of sin. And sin's always good at the beginning. Nobody would do it if it wasn't fun at first. And she talks about, she's like proud of how much money she received for her, renting herself out. And she talks about that. She talks about the cars and the money and the power that she had, she felt. And then she talks about when it turns dark. She talks about getting beaten by her pimp. She talks about getting hooked on drugs, the painkillers. She talks about getting cancer and then still selling herself out and what that was like. And getting hooked on the painkillers. And then wanting it to all just go away. And then after selling herself off one time, she talks about how she went in the shower and she said, I, just, I felt like God was angry with me and I just scrubbed myself and I thought I'll never be clean. And so then one night, she got involved in cocaine. She's freebasing cocaine. She thought, I'm just going to get so, I just want the pain to go away. I'm going to get higher than I've ever been before. And she said, and all the light in the room went away. And she felt this demonic presence. And she knew she was right there at the end. And she visualized her own funeral. And saw her family, who she hadn't talked to in years. And they were walking by her coffin. She's in the coffin. And they're crying. But then they're all saying, she's just a prostitute. And she cried out, Jesus, save me. And the ambulance came and took her to the hospital, the emergency room. And the doctor came up to her and said, little lady, you are lucky. God must be with you because you've got so many drugs in your system. You know what God was doing? 
was giving her a second chance because God's a God of second chances. And you know, these very words that are in this passage, they appear in the New Testament. In fact, we were studying together before Easter, 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 are the exact words of this passage. Once you were not my people, now you are my people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so God's a God of second chances. God gives mercy. God gives hope. God's unfailing love is coming after you. But not everybody receives a second chance. Not everybody receives his mercy. Not everybody receives, you know who the people are? You know who he's talking to in 1 Peter chapter 2? It's the people who've repented. Repentance leads to renewal. Do you want that second chance? You've got to repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, where was your Jezreel? Go back to that Jezreel. It means to see that time for what it really was. You didn't just drift, just go away. That dark moment was that dark door that Annie was talking about where you decide to throw caution to the wind. You're just going to do your own thing. And for some people, it's a slow progression. For other people, you know exactly what you're doing and you're going through it. But to see it for what it is, and it's the heaviness of all that we've talked about up till this point, it's the weight of what's separating us from God. It's our sin. And to turn from that and then to turn to God, that's repentance. We get a great picture of it in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament of the prodigal son who goes off and wastes his life then comes back. And do you know what? The father's running to him with open arms. That's unfailing love. Love is patient. It's kind. God's love never fails. His love's coming for you. Some of us, we need to repent. We need to turn. Recognize your Jezreel. Where was that moment where you started to drift? You used to be closer and something happened and turn from that and turn back to your father and he takes you back with open arms every time. Keeps no record of wrongs. You can be clean. She, Annie goes on in her testimony and she talks about being clean, being made a virgin again by God. Because God can, he can raise a valley of dry bones. He can transform your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God of second chances. Thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you that you don't just wink at sin that you are just, that you are righteous, that you are holy. You're not like us. And we need you. Some of us here need to repent of trusting in the bow, trusting in our own strength, trusting in politics, or trusting in our own plan and our own strategies to accomplish even your, even what we think you want done in our lives that we're trying to do in our own strength. We need to repent. And what we're going to do now is just have a time of repentance. And some of you need to repent to the Lord for sin. It's very clear sin in your life. Some of you, you need to repent. You've spoken evil against other believers in Jesus Christ, and you're going to sing songs about Jesus and praise him. He's going, no, 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 no. I don't want that. You get right with those people. Some of you need to repent right now of that. Some of you need to reconcile marriages. Some of you, you might go to your spouse and say, we need to reconcile. And the other spouse will be like, well, for what? I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and you just, you just start talking. Maybe, maybe it's unfaithfulness like going over, but maybe it's smaller unfaithfulness. Maybe it's things that, that don't seem as overt. Where, where did it start? Where do you start to drift? And repent from that. Repent of our anger. Repent of our jealousy. Repent of our sins. Because repentance leads to renewal. God loves you. And tell you to repent so you can wallow in shame, so you can wallow in guilt, so you can see the darkness of that and turn to the beauty of his grace. Turn to the cross of Christ. And experience new life, his unfailing love. He is coming after you. And he's relentless. And that's what we're going to see throughout this book. I'm going to let you continue to talk to the Lord in this moment. You talk to him. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, acknowledge your sin before him. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And ask Jesus to be your Savior in this moment. And call upon him right now.
if you need to repent of a sin, maybe you're a believer or not a believer, you need to repent, you need to turn, you want to talk to somebody, I'm going to tell you that. Some of our elders will be off to the side in this room up against the wall. So you want to repent? If you want, when the song starts, if you want to come forward and kneel down at the altar, just lay an idol down. Maybe you've been trusting in something that is not the Lord. It's been God to you. And you want, it's symbolically, metaphorically, lay it down at the altar. No one will mess with you. The elders won't come. The pastors won't come and pray with you. But if you want to pray with someone, I'm just going to ask our elders to go off to the side and be available in the back of the room or if you're a prayer counselor or even if you're a small group leader in our church, maybe go off to the side so that somebody in your small group wants to pray with someone, they'll see you, know that you're available. The worship team's going to lead us in a song, and if you feel led to stand and sing it and belt it out, you can do so. If you want to stay seated and continue to pray, you can do so. If you want to come down here to the front and pray, I just hope that you, you feel total freedom, however the Holy Spirit leads you to do it in this moment. Well, I hope you're closer with him after this moment than you were before. Father, thank you for being in this place. Thank you for speaking to us. You continue to pray.